Good morning. If you have your Bible, if you want to go ahead and find 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, we'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 6 this morning. Now, our text for today is one that is commonly taken out of context in our culture. If you would get on the internet right now and go to Google and you started typing in money is, do you know what the first suggestion that it will give you is? It'll say the root of all evil. And today what we're going to see is that this is actually a partial quote, or rather a misquote of a Bible verse. Uh, there are several, there are lots of clever cliches and sayings about money. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a few of those with you this morning. Um, money talks, but all mine ever says is goodbye. Maybe you know how that feels. I know I do. <laughs> how about this? Mark Twain used to say, the lack of money is the root of all evil. It was Elizabeth Taylor who said, how can money be the root of all evil if shopping is the cure for sadness? No? Here's my favorite. Money is the root of all evil. For more information, send me $10. And, and you don't need to give me 10 bucks today, but hopefully what we're going to do is discover... Um, discover some new ideas as we continue this series, Context Matters. Uh, last week, if you remember, we put the text of Jeremiah 29, 11 into context and discovered that God will always do, won't always do what we want to, but He will always do what He says. And our text for this morning is found in the Apostle Paul's first letter to his young protege, Timothy. After Paul had installed him as the pastor of the church at Ephesus. He sent him two letters to equip him in the task of pastoring. And he goes over the key ingredients that will make for a healthy church. And in chapter 6, he gives Timothy some practical ways to deal with false teachers. See, in the church in Ephesus, there were people in there. There were these prosperity preachers who were promising financial gain for those who were claiming it by faith. And they were also trying to get rich by the redeemed. Sound familiar? Because it's something that's still going on today. So I want us to pray, we'll read our text, and we'll learn some important truths for our lives today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to gather today. Um, just to worship you, to spend this time in your presence, uh, worshiping, learning, and coming close to you. Lord, I ask that, that we feel your presence, that we feel uh, closer to you by being here today, and that we learn what it means to be content as a Christian. Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for what he's done for us. Thank you for what we'll learn today, and Lord, be with us as we read your word this morning. And I assist in Jesus' name. Amen. So, 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 6, the Bible says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content." But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money 
is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. In verses 6 to 8, Paul gives us three ways to become a contented Christian. So I want us to look at these three ways for us to be contented Christians. And the first of these is that we need to prioritize faithful godliness over financial gain. We need to prioritize faithful godliness over financial gain. Uh, He says in verse 6, if you look at that, it says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. See, Paul says with this but, he's saying, despite what the world around you is saying, he's showing that the contrast between God's word and the common teaching of the day, he's saying godliness It leads to contentment. It leads to great gain. And I'm going to teach you some Greek this morning because we all like Greek. Um, It says the the word great, the word in Greek, it is megas. And do you know what it means? It means mega. It means huge. It means massive. It means big. So, so, So the implication here is that instead of focusing in on wealth, on financial gain, We need to prioritize growing in godliness. See, godliness does not give us financial gain. It is itself gain when we combine it with contentment. See, when we seek our soul satisfaction in our Savior, what's going to happen is we'll become content Christians. We need to prioritize faithful godliness over financial gain. And the second thing to be the second way to be a contented Christian is we need to proclaim that what you have is not yours. You need to proclaim that what you have that it's not yours. Everything that you have, everything that you think that you have, it has been given to you. And you can't take what you do have with you when you die. Paul goes on, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can't take anything out of the world. Uh, Job, he knew this lesson. Job chapter 1, verse 21, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Solomon, probably the wisest man that's ever lived, said this as well in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 15. He said, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Even the psalmist in Psalm 49, verse 17 says, For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. It's, it's interesting that the millionaire, J.D. Rockefeller, he was once asked the question, somebody said, sir, how much money is enough? And do you know what he answered? He said, just a little bit more. And after he died, someone asked the question, how much did he leave behind? And the answer was all of it. We need to prioritize Faithful godliness over financial gain. We need to proclaim that what you have is, is not yours. And the third one, the third way to be a contented Christian is to pursue wanting what you already have. 
You need to pursue what you already have. I want you to notice what verse 8 says. It says, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. What Paul's saying is if we have the basic necessities of life, if we have those basic things, our needs are met, aren't they? I mean, it's not about having the newest iPhone. It's not about having the newest car or the fanciest house. Scripture says if our needs, our basic needs are met, we're okay. We, we should be content. The world, on the other hand, says we need more and we need more and more and more because enough is never enough. See, understand this, contentment. Contentment is not having everything you want. We might think it is, but it's not. Contentment is not having everything you want. Contentment only comes when you want what you already have. That's when you know you're content. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 16 says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. See, Contentment contentment is not a function of what you possess. Contentment is what you cherish. And the key question is this. Is Christ alone enough for you? Is Christ enough? See, Christians, as a Christian, we can be content because Christ is with us. The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 13, 5, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But Paul, says the, we, Paul shares the contrast to that. In verse 9, he says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and darkness. And, and Paul, what he does, he lays out the dangers of chasing after a little bit more. He, he lays out the dangers of chasing after just a little bit more. And the first of those dangers is there's a desire. The word desire, it just means to, to crave, to long for, to stretch out to get something. Some time ago, Money Magazine declared that money is now the number one obsession of Americans. Hard to believe, isn't it? Money? Money's number one. It's not peace, it's not happiness, it's not love. It, money is the number one desire of people. Just plain old hard cash. And it's so easy for our desire for money to become an idol. And one of the problems with idols is they need to be fed because they're always hungry. It becomes something where the needs are limitless, and they demand this ongoing sacrifice. First, there's this desire and then there's a deviation. The next step down, it's deviation. It's, Paul says they fall into temptation. There, there's this amazing illustration from Genesis chapter 13, uh, if you know Genesis a lot. He, he chose the best land, but in doing so, do you know what he did? He set up his tent 
right next to Sodom. And, and, and did you know that we can never stand still spiritually? Because if we start trying to just coast along in our walk, if we just try to, to just keep on keeping on, what's going to happen is we'll eventually compromise. And I want you to see how Lot's downward spiral happened. First, he saw, he saw the seduction of Sodom in, in Genesis 13.10. It says, in Lot, he, Lot, he lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley it was well watered, and everywhere it was like the garden of the Lord. So he saw it, and he thought, this looks nice. This looks appealing. And then he walked towards Sodom. In Genesis 13, 11. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. And then he lived near Sodom in Genesis 13, 12. He, he settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. He, he pitched his tents just outside of Sodom so he could look at that city and long after it. And eventually in chapter 19, we're told that Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Sodom didn't just live near Sodom. He didn't just live outside of Sodom. Now he's living in Sodom with and among the wicked. See, desire, when we see something that we don't really need, it leads to deviation. And next, to deception. Paul goes on in verse 9 in 1 Timothy 6, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and darkness. Now a snare, in case you don't know, it, it, it was like a noose or a sudden unexpected trap, and it reminds me of, a, of the vivid picture in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 25, where it says, you shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. See, desire, it leads to deviation, then to the deception, and finally, destruction. It leads to destruction. It leads us to a dark place. Paul says it plunges people into ruin and darkness. According to the National Endowment for Financial Education, about 70% of the people who win the lottery actually wind up broke in just a few years. Other studies show that lottery winners frequently become divided uh, from family, from friends, and they incur a greater incidence of depression, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, divorce, and suicide than the average American. See, money can't buy you love, and it can't buy you happiness. And that's when we come to our text in verse 10. For the love of money is a root, not the root, it is a root, of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So what we notice right away about money is that it's not the root of all evil. It is the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And it's interesting when you look at this text 
that verses 9 and 10, they're almost exact parallels. And that was a great teaching method often used by Hebrews in their literature. Even though this is written in Greek, Paul, well, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, and he was well-versed. He understood this method. And we'll see our four Ds again. First, there's the desire. Verse 9 says, those who desire to be rich, and he uses the phrase, the love of money, in verse 10. There's the deviation. Verse 9 says that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. While verse 10 describes the love of money as a root of all kinds of evil. What do you know about roots? Well, roots determine the fruit, don't they? In the sin of coveting, which is the 10th commandment out of the 10, it's often the root of breaking the other nine, isn't it? When you covet something, when you want something, when you desire something. And this kind of love of money is the root. It's a root of all kinds of evil in the world today. I think back to Achan in Joshua chapter 7, when he finally confessed to what he'd done and why he did it. This is what he said. He says, When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, he says, Then I coveted them and took them. Psalm, uh, Psalm 10 verse 3 says, For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. See, we see that deviation. And then there's the deception again. Verse 9 says that this temptation, it can lead us into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. Verse 10, it tells us it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. Paul would even write in 2 Timothy about a man who wandered. He says, for Demas, in love with the present world, he has deserted me. See, you need to understand that money, money by its very nature, it's deceptive. In describing the four soul types represented by four different soils, Jesus says in Mark 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 19, he says, But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of what? Of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And then we see the destruction. Verse 9, Paul says they will plunge people into ruin and destruction. And verse 10 says that they have pierced themselves with many pangs. And the word pierce, the original word is pretty graphic. It was used for putting meat on a spit and roasting it over an open flame. And it's a great way to cook. But it's not how you want to spend your evening, is it? People like Ananias and Sapphira and Simon Magus and Judas come to mind. See, we need to listen. The desire for the love of money, it will ultimately, it will ultimately deceive and destroy you, causing you to lose what matters most. Let me ask, are you finding yourself... Slipping from desire to deviation to deception, 
and headed for ultimate destruction. If you're struggling with this, if you're struggling with any other issue, I have some great news about how to be delivered from all this. Paul goes on in chapter 6 here, verses 11 to 12, he says, but as for you, he says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul's saying, you, you need to flee those things that are tripping you up. You need to run away from those things that are, tr- are holding you back. And we need to fight and pursue the things that grow our faith. And if you drop down to verses 17 to 19, Paul gives us some specific ways to be fruitful with our finances. Let me read verses 17 and 19. It says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. If you notice, Paul addresses those who are rich in the present age. And and, and to this morning, you may be thinking, well, that's not me because I'm not rich. I don't have much. But I want you to know, compared to the rest of the world, most of us, we have way more than what others do. If you would get on the website, howrichami.org, do it later if you want to, you can plug in your annual income and see how rich you are compared to the rest of the world. And I'm just going to share some of this real quickly. If you have an annual income of only $19,250, you are wealthier than 90% of the rest of the world. If you only make $10,000 a year, you are richer than, uh, than 80% of the world. And if you, to be in the top 1%, to be richer than 99% of the rest of the people in the world, your annual income only needs to be $58,000. So even if you don't consider yourself wealthy... Even if you think that you're poor, you're not, relatively speaking. That's why the wisdom that Paul shares in this text is spot on for us. He he says, Timothy, I want you to charge them. And and what that is, it's a strong military command. It it was used to advance in order. These aren't just helpful hints. They're not funny quotes. This is a charge. And there are seven commands. I know that's a lot, but I'll go through them quickly. There are seven commands that we can find directly in these verses. First, don't be arrogant about what you have. Don't be arrogant about what you have. Because when we have a little bit of money, 
When we have a little bit of money, it makes us feel like we're worth more and that we're better than those who have less. And when we think, when we start thinking that we're something or that we're somebody, it's good to think about the question that's asked in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? See, think of it this way. The issue, it's not about how much money that you have. The issue is how much does money have you? Albert Schweitzer once said, if you have something that you can't live without, you don't own it. It owns you. And it might be a good thing for us to ask ourselves, do my possessions, do they possess me? Next one, don't set your hopes on what you have. Don't set your hopes on what you have. Riches, they're uncertain. They are uncertain. That means that they're not safe. If you invest money, you know one day it can go up and the next day it can go down. Riches are uncertain. There are no guarantees on the material things of this world. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 5. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. See, money, money's kind of like seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you're going to get. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, it says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. The next command that we'll see is set your hopes on God and enjoy what you have. Set your hopes on God and enjoy what you do have. Uh, and we can do this. We're capable of doing this because God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. <laughs> see, there's this misconception that as a Christian, you need to be a wet blanket and be a party pooper and not a very happy person. But God wants us to find pleasure in the gifts that he does give us. And the word richly in this text, it means abundantly. And the key, the key for us is to recognize that everything that we have, that everything is a gift from him. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, it, it provides really the right balance between our wants and our needs. It says, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches, Feed me with the food that is needful to me. And he goes on, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. It happens a lot, though. People, they become content because they think I've made it. I have enough money. I have enough clothes. I have enough gas in my car. I did it. And I'm set. And they forget about God. The next command, do good with what you have. Start doing good with what you do have. Verse 18, it calls us to be rich in good works. James chapter 2, um, verses 15 to 17, James, the brother 
The half-brother of Christ writes these words, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also by itself, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. See, how often do you see somebody with a need and you say, I'll pray for you about that. When you could help them. And they're hungry. See, faith, our faith and our works, they go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. You, you can't just say, uh, I have faith and I'm good to go. You can't say, I'm doing good things and say, I don't really need faith. They have to, to coexist in our lives. They go hand in hand. The next idea, be generous with what you have. Start being generous with what you do have. Paul, he says we need to be ready to share by freely giving what we've been freely given. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 7, it says, The point is this. The, this is the point. Whoever sows sparingly, will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. See, I like this. Someone put it like this. Money, money is like manure. Do you agree? See, if, 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 you, if you pile manure up, what happens? It stinks. But if you spread it around, it can do a lot of good, can it? Nothing cures greed like giving. Because covetousness, coveting, can't live in a generous heart. And if you're struggling with this, a covetous nature, start giving your way out of it. The next one, invest what you have for eternity. Start investing what you do have for eternity. Paul says, thus storing up treasures for themselves is a good foundation for the future. How many of you, just, you don't have to raise your hand unless you want to. How many of you have invested for your future to retire someday or did that in the past? I'd like to, I'd like to not work at the post office someday. I'm throwing that out there. I have eight years left. Eight years, what time is it? Uh, eight years and 13 hours, I think. It's getting close. Paul says, thus storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future. We invest for our future here, but we need to be investing for our future in heaven. Jesus said something very similar in Matthew chapter 6. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And he finishes with this. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I really like what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, that only is worth my having, which I can have forever. 
That only is worth my grasping, which death cannot tear out of my hand. We invest in what's important. Let me, this next one. The only way to live is to give what you have. And I guess we could say it like this. Giving brings real living. Acts chapter 20, verse 35 tells us, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer, he wrote these timely words. He says, our woes began when God was forced out of his central shrine and things were allowed to enter. God's gifts now take the place of God, and the whole course of nature is upset by this monstrous substitution. Jesus even said like this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You need to know this, that you will never, ever grow in contentment without a consuming passion for Christ. And it's time for us to surrender to the Savior so that we can be saved, so so that we can serve Him and not money as our master. Today... It's, i got to make down steps, sorry. <laughs> Today is a day that we can become truly content. That we can hold on to the things that really matter. And I know for a lot of people that money is the thing that they want more than anything else in life. It's that driving passion. It's just all-consuming desire for just a little bit more. And you're not taking any of it with you. You're not taking anything with you. See, we can't serve God while trying to serve money. Christ even said that. You can't serve two masters. Today, who are you serving? Are you only looking towards your investments? Are you only looking towards that next new thing? Are you only living for that little bit more? You don't need to be. Because God gives us generously everything that we need. Everything that we really need. Not necessarily what we want, but he will always give us what we need. And it's time to start trusting Him. To look to Him rather than the things of this world to find real satisfaction. As the worship team comes this morning, first I'd like to challenge you to the first step. And that's knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior. Knowing that what He did on a cross on Calvary was for you. That he paid the debt that you owed. And we all know about debt. It's not fun. It's not something good to have hanging over your head. And this is one that you cannot ever pay off.
Christ is the only one who can. And he did that by giving his life on your behalf. He was buried and on that third day raised back to life. Giving us hope and peace when we come to him as our savior. Romans 10.9, it tells us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. And that means that we can invest in what really matters, where we'll spend eternity. By allowing Him to have the rightful place of being first and foremost in our life. Like that Money Magazine article said, Today in the world, most people, their number one desire is money. And that's wrong. As a Christian, our desire should be to serve and please our Savior. So this morning, if you don't know Christ personally, take the opportunity as we sing to publicly profess your faith in Him. To say, Lord... I know I can't pay back what what you've done for me. And I am so thankful for what you did. Accept him. Admit, Admit that you're a sinner. Believe that he died for your sins. And confess your faith in him. It's simple. And it changes everything. And if you already do know him, Don't let, whether it's money or possessions or whatever it is, take his spot in your life. Take this opportunity to say, Lord, I want you back where you belong, front and center. That you'll be my driving desire and passion and focus from this point forward. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I encourage you, come. Father God, thank you uh, for your son, Jesus. Thank you for what he's done for all of us. That you loved us enough to send your only son into the world on our behalf. And Lord, I just pray that recognizing the truth of what you've done for us, that Lord, that we give you the honor and the service that you deserve. Help us put you in in, in that rightful spot in our life. Help us to put you as our driving force And help us be a church that is intently focused on sharing the gospel, the good news about your son with the lost world. Lord, thank you again for for who you are. And just thank you for giving us generously and richly everything that we truly need. Knowing the truth that we needed you more than anything else. Lord, we love you. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.